Welcome to 20 Minute Topic, I'm Marcus Stead, and this week's podcast is particularly special. We've all seen the footage from September 1938 of Neville Chamberlain's plane arriving back from Munich and of him standing on the wet tarmac where he made the famous Peace in Our Time speech waving his piece of paper. The conventional wisdom has, for too long, been that this was an act of appeasement and that Chamberlain had been taken for a fool by Hitler. My regular co-host Greg Lance Watkins is going to tell us a story of how, as a young soldier, he met former Prime Minister Alec Douglas Hume, who explained to him that far from being naive or stupid, Chamberlain's actions had delayed an inevitable war and had bought Britain vital time to rearm. Without Chamberlain, war would have started a year earlier and the outcome would have been very different. So Greg, this story which you first told me on the phone some years ago, it got publicity earlier this year when the late Christopher Booker wrote about it in his column and from there Peter Hitchens wrote about it in his blog. He picked it up from Christopher Booker's column. So take us back to the beginning with it. It's 1965. You're in the army at Sandhurst travelling to see your parents in Scotland and you made a train journey. Start from there. Um, yes, except for one thing. Christopher rang me up because I'd told him the story several years ago. And he said, look, as you know, um, I don't have long um, that I will be continuing to work um, because at that stage we both knew that uh, his condition was terminal. Hmm. And he said, having been a history graduate, uh, I feel that this is one of the great wrongs of history that it's my duty to correct. Hmm. And it was a story I had told him some years earlier, because I'd known Christopher since the 60s. Hmm. And it was about the um, appeasement act of Chamberlain, ostensibly. Hmm. That was how history saw it in general domain. However, I was traveling home to my pet parental home in the northwest highlands of Scotland. Mm. I was on the overnight express sleeper from uh, London to Inverness. Mm. And I didn't have a sleeper booked, but I was traveling on an army rail warrant. And as I recall it, in those days, we had to wear uniform if we were using a warrant. Mm. Uh, so I was in uniform, and I didn't, as I say, I didn't have a sleeper booked. But in those days, I was young enough not to need sleep and young enough to be immortal anyway. And so I thought, right, I shall go to the dining car and I'll have a cup of coffee and so on and while away some of the hours uh, reading the newspaper. Mm. I went into the dining car and it was absolutely packed um, with presumably like-minded. I got waved through to the first-class sector by the staff Mm. because I was in uniform and there weren't any places there either. And um, to me, at uh, my tender age in about 1965, 
there was a quite elderly gentleman sitting on his own at a table, and he said, are you looking for a seat? And I said, uh, uh, yes, sir. And he said, you're welcome to join me. And as I sat down, I realized I was taking a seat with Sir Alec Douglas Hume. Now, this, who, this in itself is extraordinary, isn't it? Because it's 1965, you're what? How old? 20-odd, is it? Something like that? Uh, no, uh, 19. 19, yep. Yeah. Alec Douglas Hume had left office as Prime Minister in October of 64, and yet yeah. here you are a year or so later... Um, and you've got a former prime minister on a train with no security acting as though he's just another passenger. That in itself is extraordinary, I think. Um, it seems that way, but it was pretty peaceable in those days because there was, even amongst criminal gangs like the IRA, there was, to some extent, some honour left um, in that he was no longer in office, so he was no longer a target. Yep, and he, even 10 years after that, which would have been, what, 1975, that would have been unthinkable. Um, I agree with you. Hmm. Hmm. You've, taken, you've taken your seat then opposite um, Sir Alec Douglas Hume, and how did you get onto this level of conversation? He noticed my shoulder flashes... And I was at Sandhurst at the time, and he commented and talked about what regiment uh, uh, was I serving with and what was I going to serve with on commission. And I actually admitted to him uh, that I so much disagreed with what was going on. Uh, I wasn't entirely sure that I was going to take my commission. Um, what was this in this reference to? What didn't you agree with? Uh, well, firstly, there was um, talk of uh, a battalion of the regiment in Hereford going into Rhodesia, um, and I really felt it was re reprehensible to be talking in terms of um, British military action against expatriates mm. in favour of Russian-trained terrorists such as Mugabe. Mm. But uh, wasn't wasn't Mugabe China's favourite uh, favourite choice though? When the time came years later, I thought uh, Russia favoured somebody else. Uh, years later, mm. um, but he um, had been trained in Russia mm. to some some degree. Yeah. Um, either way, um, he was an en enemy of the state as far as I was concerned. Mm. And um, the more time passed, the more re we realised um, just how great an enemy he was. Well, yes, because there's footage on YouTube, even from the 1970s, of um, Mugabe in London round about the time of the Lancaster House Agreement, and he's walking along the side of the Thames having a cosy chat with David Dimbleby. And we saw even well into the 1980s and indeed into the 1990s, well, he was awarded a knighthood, Robert Mugabe. It was something that dawned on this country gradually, although the signs were there all along about what a tyrant Robert Mugabe really was. But he became, um, by the time of Ian Smith's departure and everything that followed, he was China's choice rather than Russia. So you had that conversation with Alec Douglas Hume, but then the conversation somehow got on to 
the events of some, what, 30 years earlier? Uh, Indeed. Um, we, we were talking about military history in general and how situations had changed with the new um, speed of news media and the, um, the degree to which it was more intrusive um, and we didn't have to wait for a gunboat to come back with the message written um, down on paper um, six weeks after the event. Hmm. Um, and the whole circumstances had changed somewhat. And the, I said it must have been quite an interesting time when uh, you went to Munich hmm. uh, with um, Neville Chamberlain. And he said, uh, indeed it was. I said, I never understood that because it never looked like appeasement to me. Hmm. And he smiled and he said... Uh, I'm surprised you noticed. You took an interest in that period of history, did you? And I said, well, my father was a fighter pilot throughout the war. And as a result, as a child, I uh, met an awful lot of the people of the history of the day, mm. and um, including your good self. And uh, he said, uh, no, I think... Uh, uh, Neville Chamberlain um, has gone down in history uh, rather unfairly. Mm. Uh, but um, that is one of the problems of high office. Mm. Um, and I said, uh, was it in fact unfair? And he said, well, what actually happened? He said, they came back. Um, they had left Munich after meeting with um, Mr. Hitler um, they had left quite early in the morning. They hadn't had breakfast. They were on a, a military transport plane. Um, from what I gathered, it had uh, very inadequate heating, mm. uh, probably wasn't fully pressurized, and it was a cold, wet morning. And um, he said they arrived back um, to drizzle, and um, they were cold. They uh, hadn't had any breakfast. They hadn't even had a cup of coffee or tea. Mm. And um, they weren't in the best of humours. And they had discussed, just as they were coming in to land, what on earth they would say if there was press there. Mm. And as they agreed, and as they came down the steps, Neville Chamberlain took a letter out of his pocket and held it aloft and said, there will be peace in our time. I have seen Mr. Hitler and there will be peace in our time. Mm. And as rapidly as possible to avoid being cross-examined in the rain, uh, they got into the ministerial car and they went back to Downing Street mm. where Lord Halifax was presiding over a cabinet meeting until they arrived. They came in and um, Mr. Chamberlain, um, an equerry, took his coat, as with Douglas Humes, mm. and um, he said uh, to the equerry, can you organize um, tea for everybody, please? And as the equerry had left the room, he turned to the cabinet table before he even sat down 
and said, Gentlemen, prepare for war. This was not an act of appeasement. This was buying time in which to rearm uh, because had Churchill formed the government, we would almost inevitably have lost the war. The reason being that Churchill was all for immediate gung-ho war uh, because he knew it was going to come to war. But Churchill was, he was a very great military war, uh, wartime leader. There is no doubt of that. Uh, he was also, um, as a young subaltern, um, a very brave soldier. Um, when acting, for instance, in the River Wars and the Sudan, mm. he was um, acquitted himself excellently in the Boer War and the siege. Mm. He was uh, a, a war correspondent at later time, mm. and um, his reports were very much from the front line. Yes, we, we know that Winston Churchill's track record both before and after World War II is hugely controversial, particularly in the decades before World War II, when he returned to power in, what, 1950. Um, after the Attlee years, he was largely regarded as ineffective by a large number of people, and he was quite elderly by that stage anyway. But uh, we can assess Churchill's legacy in another podcast, perhaps some other time. But focusing on Chamberlain, it was the conventional wisdom when I was doing GCSE history and I used to watch TV documentaries with my father about World War II and so forth. And I remember at one time that footage of Chamberlain getting off the plane was shown on a documentary and my and the whole piece in our time thing came out. My father shouted the word fool at the telly. But that has been the conventional wisdom for all these years. And yet this, you happening to bump into Alec Douglas Hume on a train we have a totally different version of what that was all about. And it looks now that Chamberlain bought this country vital time to rearm and to prepare for war. Far from being a fool, he was ahead of everybody else and understood the need to buy this vital time. And Peter Hitchens, in his blog article, said that in his book The Phony Victory, which I haven't read yet, this fits in very nicely with what Peter had already written before he was even aware of this anecdote. Um, there's no doubt uh, that Neville Chamberlain made exactly the right decision mm. and put out the pu exactly the right publicity. Mm. Uh, he could hardly come back and say, I fooled the old bugger and mm. uh, we've got away with it mm. um, because that would have blown the bottom out of it, The what he was trying to do. The whole thing was to convince Germany... Uh, that Britain was no threat, mm. so that we had time to rearm, so that we had time to build airplanes, so that we had time um, to put into position our munitions and bring totally up to date and active our munitions factories mm. and um, build fighter planes to start with. Yes, this, this story is, what, uh, more than 50 years old now. You, you obviously have lived your life, you've travelled around the world, you've settled back in Britain eventually. Have you tried his, over all these decades to try and at least get it into the British press? And what reaction did you 
get when you made these efforts in the past? Um, I had tried, as shown by the fact that I had um, talked with uh, Christopher Booker as a friend Mm. uh, and told him the story uh, some 20 years earlier. Mm. And Christopher at the time had said, I really must write that up as a story Mm. um, and get that published. But it's one of those stories that um, journalists tend to hold in their locker Um, in case they have a week when um, news is very dull and they can haul it out, if they remember it. Mm. Um, It was put on one side, um, on the spike to be dealt with one day. Mm. Um, But that day never seemed to come Mm. until um, the urgency of... um, I guess, as Christopher Booker would have put it, an old man in a hurry. Yeah. Um, He was in somewhat of a hurry uh, to tidy up the stories that were on the spike. Yes, and this is is historically important, and I I think this podcast will be around for years and years because this really needs to get out there. Chamberlain was no fool. He knew exactly what he was doing, and he played it absolutely perfectly, and that really should be his legacy – and after all these years, there is still time to put it right. Um, so it, this is out there now. The, the anecdote is out there. Very briefly, if you would, please. What else did you discuss with Alec Douglas Hume during that train journey? Um, Scotland. Mm. Um, his love for Scotland. Mm. Um, he was going shooting on the estate in Scotland. Mm. Um, he'd lost office and he laughed about it. And he said he wasn't surprised. Um, the office of prime minister was not one he had ever sought, mm. um, but it was one that came about mm. um, and that um, I was impolite enough to say. And of course, um, one of the problems you had was you were so readily cartooned mm. um, by the cartoonists in the media um, because uh, it didn't need explaining to anyone uh, where he'd come unstuck because he was, in some ways, a strange-looking man. He looked much older than he was, mm. and he had a slightly cadaverish look to him, mm. um, very drawn and tall and slim, which was not uh, a good Uh, facility to have cartooned because he was frequently represented as a skeleton in power Mm. Mm. um, as a prime minister and uh, the Tories knew that it would serve the party ill in an election and that is why he was not elected as prime minister or should I say re-elected as prime minister um we generally discussed uh, shooting because I lived at uh, that time on an estate in the in the Northwest Highlands, uh, where there was several thousand head of red deer. It was a hundred and eighty thousand acre estate, mm. um, and uh, the only river in salmon river in Britain uh, that was owned by one landowner from its source to its mouth. So it was quite a well-known estate. 
Well, after listening to that story, I think it's time to completely reassess Chamberlain's legacy. Far from being naive or foolish, he bought Britain vital time to rearm and should be regarded as a national hero. My special thanks to Greg, that story deserves to go down in history. My thanks also to you for listening. Join us again next week. <laughs> <laughs>